let's take, for example, the issue of homelessness in Australia, which is a huge multifactorial problem. Is it realistic for a charity with a $100 million budget to think that they're going to solve that in Australia? And I would say questionable. And maybe the role of the charity is not to actually fix the problem. Maybe the role of the charity is to instigate the fixing of the problem. You have played a really strong role in the community through the book Redundant Charities. Give us a bit of context around why Redundant Charities? Why did this book need to be brought to the world? When I was a lot younger, I spent a fair bit of time in some really poor countries. And that was a real awakening for me to get out of my bubble of being in Sydney and to realise that actually the majority of the world lives in something that I'm not familiar with. I think that was a moment for me to realise that while it's good to want to help people, and I think that's very noble and it's part of being human, thinking a little bit about the best way to help people is really important too. The charity I started in Cambodia, which is obviously an example I'm familiar with, the issue we're trying to address is speech therapy. So there are just no speech therapists in the whole country. So what we did is we decided to set up the speech therapy profession and we're going to do it by going from zero speech therapists to 100 speech therapists and we're going to do that by 2030 and then we'll actually shut the charity down. But in the meantime, we're going to create the ecosystem whereby this profession can grow beyond 100 because 100 is clearly not enough. What's more important, the time that you are around or the legacy that you leave behind? Way, how are you, my friend? Good, thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Mate, I'm, uh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited about today. I say that to a lot of guests, but... Um, <laughs> this time you really mean it. No, nah, yes, I do. I always really mean it, but I, there's always a reason I mean it. That's it. And uh, I think what I always look for in a guest is someone that's got something that's um, thought-provoking. Mm. And I certainly think today will be that. We won't give away all of that just yet. Mm. But, uh, but you rode in on your bike. Yes. You, um, are you refreshed? Are you ready to go? I'm ready. Yeah. I mean, bike was because I have to zip off afterwards from here, but I saved you the full spandex. So at least I dressed, you know, normally. I, in I was comments. impressed. I was actually thinking like this guy, he, he's either changed super quickly or something's <laughs> going on. So, um, but mate, um, at least you're health conscious as well. That's true. So outside of a bit of fun and games, we are here to talk about you and your journey and your story and and i guess it starts with for me the fact that you are so were and and not uh, awarded social entrepreneur of the year mm. and you have played a really strong role in the community through the book which we'll talk about if anyone can see it redundant charities and you've also run a social enterprise umbo which mm. again we'll unpack today mm. so there's a lot that um I think you'll bring to the table here that will really challenge the average person and probably a lot of it quite reasonably. Mm. Um, so may maybe if you can start off and just give us a bit of context around why Redundant Charities, why did this book need to be brought to the world? Yeah, so my background is I come from a lot of privilege and also a lot of sacrifice. So by privilege, I mean, look at this amazing country we were, we're living in. I was born in Australia grew up in a very nice part of Sydney as well. But the sacrifice part is because my great-grandparents moved from China to Malaysia mm -hmm. in a time of famine. And then my parents came from Malaysia to Sydney. And when they did, my dad had $100 in his back pocket mm -hmm. and then worked his way up through mostly corporate work um, and managed to put his three sons through really good schools and education. So I guess I've always been aware of that backdrop on my life. Mm. And when I was... A lot younger, I spent a fair bit of time in some really poor countries, including Vietnam and China and India. And that was a real awakening for me to get out of my bubble of being in Sydney and to realise that actually the majority of the world lives in something that I'm not familiar with. Mm. When I was there, I was actually volunteering at this time in an orphanage in, in uh, Vietnam and there was a natural disaster. So the roof of this orphanage got lifted off in the middle of a typhoon, the first time I'd ever been in a situation like that. And I remember this feeling that I had being there of just pure helplessness and also feeling like I don't really belong here. I don't have the skills to be here. I don't have a child protection check. I'm working with kids alone all the time. And I think that was a moment for me to realize that while it's good to want to help people, and I think that's very noble and it's part of being human, thinking a little bit about the best way to help people 
is really important too. So the way that I view it is there's a moment there from our reaction to seeing someone in a bad state. Let's say we walk past someone who's homeless and then the action that we take and that pause in between, that really determines how effective that work is. And so that's guided a lot of the work that I've done. And I think this book as well. Very good. Very good. So I think we need to rip out (laughs) and pull apart that idea of pausing and what you mean by that. Um, can you, yeah, maybe if we start there, so sure. give us a little bit more color. Well, I mean, in in our lives, we want to help people and often we go towards that idea of helping with what we already have. So there's this idea that I talk about in the book of to every man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So let's think, for example, I might be a teacher and I go across to Nepal and I see that education isn't really up to scratch what it should be, I think, for those mm-hmm. sorts of kids. So it might be my first instinct to then go, oh, I'm going to build a school or I'm going to bring Australian teachers across to do a bit of teaching, or maybe I'm going to train up local teachers. Mm. But that's all, that's all on the basis of what I know and what's within my kind of realm of possibilities. And the problem with that kind of work is that although it does help, absolutely does help. And again, is very noble. There's no real distinct endpoint. So there's a difference, I think, between addressing the symptoms of a problem and solving the problem once and for all. Often this symptom addressing work that is done is because it's an emotional reaction to doing something and we haven't really thought about the end in mind. So a big part of my book, and you can tell by the title, Redundant Charities, is thinking about when is this charity actually going to end? And when it ends, we know that the problem has been solved. It's a great, it's a, it's a great theory. I, lo- I love it and I, um, I don't disagree with it. I want, I want to sort of challenge it yeah. and explore it today. And I think... When I look at charity, I see kind of two types of charities in my world, right? I see something that's designed to cure or remove a problem Mm. and something that's required to potentially manage maybe potentially an ever-present problem. Do you differentiate between the two when you consider the idea of redundancy? Definitely. So first of all, the model doesn't work with all charities. Mm. And secondly, I'm just throwing out all the caveats here. (laughs) Secondly, this is not the be-all and end-all concept of charities it's just one perspective to look at effective charity work but um with that model of charity that you talked about that's there to solve a huge problem i think the charities do have to think about whether they're the best people to solve that problem though so let's take for example the issue of homelessness in australia which Mm -hmm. is a huge multifactorial problem is it realistic for a charity with a hundred million dollar budget to think that they're going to solve that in australia and I would say questionable. So then I guess the question comes back to, well, what's the role of the charity in addressing this problem? And maybe the role of the charity is not to actually fix the problem. Maybe the role of the charity is to instigate the fixing of the problem and then let whoever does have the resources actually solve the problem once and for all. So again, it it comes back to what do we think we can do about the problem and are we the right people to do it? And I question whether charities are a lot of these bigger problems. Mm. Well, the same question comes up with commercial businesses all the time. Like, what is the problem we're really solving? And you often find when a when a traditional corporate fails, it's usually because of the same, you know, uh, I guess, dynamic at play. Mm. Are we really solving the problem correctly? However, when the business gets larger, the band-aids can be put on much more easily mm-hmm. and it seems to sustain. And you you make this reference in your book to the idea that larger charities kind of align with larger corporates Mm. and that potentially um, the motivation is actually to stay big, Mm. not to stay impactful or to to be impactful. Can you you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So I I do talk about this influence of the private sector in the charity world. And, you know, that is a fact, whether or not it's good or bad, we don't need to sort of comment on that. But I think some of the influence of the private sector means that charities feel that they must grow. So there's this idea in charities of growth is good at all costs. And again, I think that's questionable because scale doesn't necessarily um, mean that the charity is more effective. Again, taking this redundant charities idea, if the charity is actually solving the problem, they should realistically be shrinking. And in the charity world, they do talk about this idea of like, oh yeah, we're doing ourselves out of a job. You know, we're empowering communities. We won't be needed. But then when you go back to them and you say, okay, when's that going to happen? When will you actually close down? There's this sort of like 
awkward silence and there might be a bit of staring out the window, then let's move on to the next topic <laughs> because it's very hard to actually quantify. And so I think some of these dynamics which do come from the private sector, they need to be questioned in the charity world because charities are not for-profit companies. They have should have different incentives and they should have different structures and they should have different goals. Mm. So you've sat with a few boards in your time. What What's the the appetite for challenging the system around this? Yeah, well, I mean, charities do it tough. And and charities, I should say, do pay, play a really important role in solving social issues. And certainly I'm not saying we should all, all charities should shut down. That's definitely not the message of the book. So I think charities play an important role. But often at the board level, the focus is very much on how the charity should continue to survive. So if you think about COVID as an example, we all know that charity donations have been really affected by the pandemic. And what's happened is that the reports show that charity boards are now focused more on survival than actually winding down. I mean, I would have thought logically that if all of your donations drop off, it might be time to think about winding a charity down. But the research is showing that it's more the other way around. They're sort of digging their heels in and saying, we need to survive at all costs. So I, th I think this is the part of the problem though, when you create something like a charity and you have systems in place that are there to be maintained, we often then do lose our focus on what we're here for. And it becomes more about maintaining the system or the image or the thing, mm. right? So this is just life in general. You think about um, your identity, you know, what what's Brad known for? Often um, you find yourself, if you get a bit lost, trying to maintain that identity rather than trying to actually think about what am I here in the world for? Mm. And those two can often be at odds. Yeah, totally. I think if anyone asks that question, their first instinct is to say, what do I do? Mm -hmm. Not why am I here and what is my, my purpose? purpose. Yeah. And um, so maybe, and, and look, we can. I, I'd love to bring this to practicality, but what I'm hearing is you're saying on one side, we're losing sight of the purpose. We're just losing sight of what that actual impact is what maybe there's just because of various distractions or mm. and part of what you're saying is one of those distractions is that the, the private or corporate sector mindset's being applied right and that's tr and you know and from my read on if you think about it really principally the private sector is designed to stay in the the game it's it's a its job is to stay in the game um you don't get a return on investment if you die mm. um and so the principles that we lean on are you know, it sounds like really fundamental is don't don't let your business go out of business. Mm. Um, and often when you think about some of the people that end up on the boards of charities, they're employees of large companies and their mindset is usually play not to lose, not play to win. Mm -hmm. You know, employees by nature typically will want to protect their job as a first priority and then go and seek success as opposed to um, you know, lean on the outcome and, and, and focus on that. It's very different to the entrepreneurs that I've dealt with in my mm. time. That's a generalization, but I, um, but I wonder what you see in this whole complexity. Give us maybe a practical example of where, um, the outcome, the, the site's been lost and, and maybe sure. through your research, what's been done. Yeah. So, well, the, the, this idea that growth is good, as you said, absolutely makes sense in the for-profit realm. You know, we want to see, all companies want to see more market share, for example, and that's because the incentives of the company are to distribute profits to shareholders, perfectly logical. Now, that that idea could make sense in a charity if the charity is the same, has the same idea, which is that some people think that charities are, I'm going to put X into a charity and I'm going to get Y output. So, for example, I'm going to put $100 in and then I'm going to feed five children in a country. For That's like the most basic form of charity. Now, this is a charity that is like the charity model that I just referenced is quite an old fashioned model of charity. It's certainly at the other end of the spectrum compared to this type of model. And I think that model can be very problematic because for starters, it doesn't really have an endpoint. You know, at what point is it actually going to solve the problem rather than address the symptom? Also, when is it going to put the people who are helping in positions of power? rather than continually keeping them um, subjugated. Mm. So this kind of charity maintains the status quo. Now, you mentioned that um, this happens in charities too. People want to you know, maintain the structure of the charity, want to make, make sure it keeps on going, make sure they keep on having jobs. There's a phenomenon in charities called mission drift, um, which is basically when a charity might be working in health 
And then a big grant comes out for education. And then they're like, oh, we do education too. So let's apply for that grant. And then another grant might come out in technology. Like, oh, we could do technology, couldn't we? So then they shift into that. So basically the money determines their purpose. And this is a really clear example of moving away from the core issue that that charity was um, built for. So the counter example would be a charity that sets up sets itself up to be redundant from the beginning. So the charity I started in Cambodia, which is obviously an example I'm familiar with, um, the issue we're trying to address is speech therapy. So there are just no speech therapists in the whole country, and yet it affects over half a million people. So lots of kids can't go to school, lots of adults can't work, interact with their peers. So what we did is we decided to set up the speech therapy profession, and we're going to do it by going from zero speech therapists to 100 speech therapists, and we're going to do that by 2030, and then we'll actually shut the charity down. But in the meantime, we're going to create the ecosystem whereby this profession can grow beyond 100, because 100 is clearly not enough. So by having that specific end goal, it's very easy to avoid this mission drift problem because money might come up. And all we have to do is ask ourselves, well, is that going to help us get to 100 therapists by 2030? And if the answer is no, well, we can't do it. Mm. So that's a, that's a target, and I'd like to s- squeeze this a bit harder. What's the ultimate purpose? Like, what's if you look at that, is what are you solving for when you think about the beyond the closure of it's a the great, charity? It's a really great question because it also brings up another question to ask about charities and life and leadership in general is what's more important, the time that you are around or the legacy that you leave behind? So you could apply the same principle to leadership, right? So What's more important, um, let's use a contemporary example, Alan Joyce, his time in leadership in Qantas or the impact of his leadership for all eternity? Um, I'll just let that one hang without giving my opinion. <laughs> um, so uh, with charities, you can either think about the time that we're around, which is the 10, 15 year period in this particular case, or all eternity. So what we focus on is that all of eternity, right? So we want to see speech therapy universally accessible and locally led. So universally accessible means everyone who needs it can get it locally led, led by the Cambodian community and particularly the government as well. So in order to get there, we can't do it for them, but we need to start off the process and then stimulate the demand, both in the public sector, private sector, nonprofit sector, so that people ask for this service and so that this profession will flourish after we pull out. Mm. So I want to talk about you in this a little bit, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. Way. So you, you share in your book a story of, I think it's Jane, Jane the accountant. Yep. It's, it's, it's based, and there'll be people listening to this who will resonate whether they're an accountant or not, it doesn't really matter. But Jane works for a company, 60 hours a week, massive hours, has this idea of giving back and decides to join a, a charity and sit on the board. Jane um, is driving decisions and direction of the charity, but has never actually engaged with, in this case, an asylum seeker. Mm. Right? It was just an example of saying, well, you're not really connected to the problem. Um, and then how do you how do you start to stay connected to what you're trying to solve? Now, for you, why did yeah, why speech therapy? Why mm. why this whole play? So my background's physiotherapy initially, and that was a very unillustrious career, if that's a word, but not an illustrious career at all. So I was two years working in a public hospital and realizing that that wasn't really my calling. So after finishing up that profession, I ended up um, spending some time overseas and studying international development and then kind of going down the pathway of working with big international charities and disability and thinking that I was going to end up working for the WHO or the UN. And that's how I'd make my impact in the world. And then I guess having misgivings about the, the sector, as I've written in the book, And then when I was in Cambodia, I was in the disability space and talking to these charities and I realized, or I was told over and over again, that this issue was the biggest issue facing people in Cambodia with disability, you know, and there were physios there and there were occupational therapists being trained through the physio course. There were psychologists, there were social workers, but just this one gap. But I think to go back to your question about why me, I think um, there's something quite, uh, specific about growing up in Australia where we do tend to go for the underdog. And I think that side of my upbringing was activated in that moment because it became really clear that there was a real obvious group who needed something. 
And at this stage, I'm in my early 30s and quite naive and stupid and thinking that I could do something about it. So that's sort of where this idea for this charity started and the rest is history. But I think I've always been attracted to um, working towards things other people maybe are missing and helping people that are really left um, out of the you know standard solutions. When you look at other people in this sector, generally charities and not-for-profits, is that part of the DNA that you you often see as well? As in, are they also addressing underdog issues? Or mm. Mm. no? I mean, I think in general the answer is no, because um, when you have money, you attract more money. That's just again fact of life. Whatever sector you're talking about. So, uh, friends of mine often ask, you know, what do you think about people who are out in the street asking for money for charities? Is that something that I should be giving money for? You know, and and I think there's like no clear-cut right or wrong answer, but my response usually is if they can afford to put people out on the streets to get more donations, do you think they actually need more donations? <laughs> or maybe there are charities and good causes out there that are underfunded and things that are being missed because they can't get to that level where they can actually invest so much money in seeking more donations. So I think when we you know pick charities to support we should always be looking for things that are probably being forgotten about and there are lots of causes that are being missed mm. well you know just on that point i probably twice a week I'll, I'll receive a phone call from someone and look i totally respect the idea of it try and get brad or anyone that they've called to throw in 30 dollars a month and then if I say no, then make it 20. And then if I say no, make it eight or whatever it is. But I think what's really difficult for, for some people who want to be very conscious of the investment is to to see the the outcome and mm. to know how believable it is. Because mm. you do hear and there's a you know, you can be spooked by, you know, how much the CEO is paid of these mm. entities or or how much of the cost of the investment is actually going to the administration mm. of the the operation as opposed to the purpose itself. Um, what's your research taught you about where the money goes? Well, I think first of all, the the idea of administration or overheads is vague. It's not easily defined. So there is an example I use of Oxfam uh, where they were headquartered in the UK and then they decided to be headquartered in Kenya, I think from memory. I think it was Nairobi. And part of this is saving money. But what they would say is it's, oh, we're being more in touch with people in poor countries in the global south and making that sure that they are, you know, more at the forefront of decision-making. But then there is a question mark about if a cost on, let's say, HR, which is definitely administrative cost, is spent in the UK, everyone would say, yes, that's definitely an overhead. But if we put that cost into a country like Kenya, where we do programs, is that now an overhead or is it a program cost? You know what I mean? So there's a slight, like, potential accounting sleight of hand to make the books look better. So I think the the discussion around overheads is important, but it, it is also very hard to define because the other question is, well, what's a reasonable overhead? And no one has a magic number. And some things will cost more overhead, well, sorry, will take more in terms of overheads than others. Along the same lines though, and what, what you said at the beginning was, um, what actually is the outcome of this work? I think that's a really important question to ask. Uh, charity when they're asking for money is what is the end game of this money that I'm going to give or this resource that I'm going to give and more important and as importantly sorry when is this problem going to be solved that's a very hard question for charities to answer mm. well it is and, and and I think then the other burden that goes on to the average person donating and I think people will resonate with this is that in the moment there's an emotional experience right? you're Absolutely. telling you're telling me a story i'm bought into it I, I want to help like there's there's a human nature to to a lot of people and say oh I, I know people that aren't motivated to help but um but that tap into that that idea that i want to do something bigger than me and i, I do that all, my, all the time but then i don't track it and i don't follow it through and i think the idea of giving in itself just makes me feel better um hoping that it would work um, do, you know, in the work you've done, what what do you see as the average person's motivation to actually 
invest their hard-earned mm-hmm. into these charities that you see? Well, first of all, I think that emotional response is good because if you didn't have an emotional response, you'd probably be a psychopath. True. So, <laughs> which I don't think you are, Brad. But Thank you. I think, um, you know, that's part of being human. And you're right. People on the street or professional fundraisers are very good at manipulating our emotions because they will just say something like, if it's a cancer charity, you know, do you have someone in your life who's affected by charity? And then, of course, we all have. You'll say a name and they'll say, well, what, what, what do you think this person would like you to do in this moment? And <laughs> how could you not how want you to give? Mm. You know, so I think it's important to be wary of those sort of tactics. But again, I think it has to be a balance of the head and the heart. You know, we can't just go into these things fully heart or fully head. Mm. We need to get the two working together. And that's why these kinds of ideas about, you know, what is the actual end game of this charity are really important because they're activating our head. Mm. And, I, and I think in, a, in Australia, at least particularly, critical discourse around charities, not a lot. I think we could do a much better job in general. And I think it's needed. Yeah. Yeah. So when I do work in uh, culture, um, I might be working with a team business and and looking at what we want it to look like and where we are now and um you know systematic changes different things that might fit into that one of the things that we'll often think about will be what's a hero story right and what does what's an example of great that we can already grab onto because it can feel for people very difficult to engage in when it's really nebulous mm. so if you could share maybe you've got some examples of where you are seeing um, strategies mm. or, or business, uh, charities that you that look yeah. feel like the walk and the talk are matching. Part of the process of writing the book that was the the part of writing that was the most gratifying was meeting these charities, mm. because the first half of the book explores the reasons why charities tend to get caught up in this cycle of dependence. And long story short, if save you from reading the whole book. The one word is incentives. Charities aren't incentive to shut down. They're incentivized to grow and they're definitely incentivized to maintain, which is why the status quo often doesn't change, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. But I was really fortunate to meet charities that are not in, that are not uh, doing that model. They're actually uh, making themselves redundant and breaking the shackles of these typical incentives. So these are charities that are mostly working overseas and they're saying things like, okay, we went to Cambodia and... We talked to the provincial government and we were working in water and sanitation and we just told them that we're going to be there for 10 years, make use of us in this meantime, and after that we're going to hand off all of the work to you. And I think that's really wise and quite unique in its approach because the first thing that it tells me is that this is not about ego for this charity. You know, at, after 10 years they'll have to redefine what their life's work is all about and we all know the counterexample, of course, uh, the charity founders that are, um, you know, very comfortable, I guess, with the celebrity status of their identity and the work that they've done. So I think when I meet these people, they are, to me, very values aligned, obviously, personally, but also it's a nice breath of fresh air because it shows that we don't have to buckle to the system and we can actually do things that are not aligned to the typical incentives. Mm. Well, how, how important... I mean, because this is an interesting part of the whole charity ecosystem when you look at it. It's, you got that example there, 10 years, we're in, mm. we're out, we're going to do everything we can, but we're going to systemize it, structure it, make a difference, mm. have some measurable impact and, and hand it over. Mm. Uh, but then you look at, you know, some quite famous people who have a, the pulling power to bring in fundamentally fuel. Mm. And if I think about any business that needs fuel, mm. you know, whether it's a charity or not, it needs fuel. You know, we, we need to somehow um, put ideas into action. Um, so where is that meet in the middle between you know, the pulling power, the ability to bring funds, um, and some of the, the way that's happening mm. versus the redundancy piece? It's a good question. I mean, I think often they, you're absolutely correct that they are at complete polar opposites. And if you choose to do work in this way, it can make your life a lot harder when it comes to fundraising for sure. Because um, the typical charities do, uh, as you mentioned, use, you know, the celebrity power or maybe they'll use the story of if you give us $100, this poor child will have something, the the heartstrings kind of story. And um, whereas these redundant charities are more focused on structural change and 
on impact and um, not being needed. I guess the middle ground is that you're right, charities do need to do what they need to do in order to fundraise. But I also think it's important for charities to not pander um, and they need to actually use the knowledge that they have to educate the public on what effective work is like. You know, so um, charities know things that the public doesn't know. And I think this is actually one of the things that charities do know in their heart makes sense. But um, it's not necessarily what the public wants to hear. It's not what people who donate want to hear. So somehow we've got to work out a middle ground where mm. we are receptive to what people want to hear, but we also want to move their fo- thinking a little bit forward and we want to make it sure make sure that as a sector we're becoming more progressive. Mm. Maybe it's a human needs issue. Uh, that will it's a, it's an ever complication. I mean, I, I was uh, people would appreciate this listening to it. You know, you scroll through Instagram mm. and you see. I know for me, I get these gurus saying, you know, you need to do this in your business. And I can tell I'm clearly a business owner, right? So you mm-hmm. can sort of see this, you know, targeting going on. And typically the way that people have been taught to buy ideas is high emotion, you know, kind of a rapid sense that you're going to have your problem fixed mm-hmm. very efficiently and ignore all the complexity because I'm going to take you straight to the heart of the purchase. And in reality, we know that's not how things work, right? We all, the reality is complicated, multi-stage, all these different pieces, and some of it's really ugly and not very sexy at all. Um, you look at a business, like fixing a business might require standardization of process and documentation and things that stabilize the way things work and hiring different people, and it's all kind of boring. Mm. Um, but that's kind of what's needed. And is that part of the challenge here is that the real issues and the big issues require unsexy work. I, and I, I just, I'm, I'm dumbing it down, but I, I guess that's what I'm hearing th- in your words. There's always a tension between programs teams, so people actually do the work and, you know, obviously monitor the work and the fundraising team in a charity because the fundraising team will look at the programs team's reports and they'll say, we can't sell this. Now, that's absolutely the same, of course, in a for-profit company, right? If you think about a, I don't know, a Google engineer versus the marketing team, there's a, there's a big difference between the two. Mm. I guess the question for that entity is like, where do I feel comfortable? You know, how far am I willing to stretch it? And around fundraising, there are um, guidelines and there are you know, rules about what you can and cannot do. So, for example, in Australia, we have the Australian Council for International Development, which focuses on international charities they say that you can't use what's known as poverty porn, which is having a child that's, you know, f- typical image of flies or gaunt kind of thing. You, you have to promote people in those countries in a positive light, not in a light that invokes pity. Mm-hmm. But charities still do it. You know, it's still very common. You turn on the TV and some of the bigger charities that I won't name, they're still showing those kinds of images. So I think for me, that's a clear example where they've gone, you know, well beyond what I would say is comfortable in terms of being values aligned because they're moving more towards what the fundraising team wants and what they know actually works. Whether or not ethically it's correct, I think it's quite questionable. It's complicated. It's complicated. So you're sitting there with a board of a charity and they're debating what we're talking about. It's pretty, it's actually quite straightforward and it's probably things that you, you know, in your work ask people to ask themselves all the time. And, um, one of the best things I think about this book is in terms of feedback that I've had recently, someone read it who's not associated with charities and said there are some really great management lessons here that could be applied in any company. But it's pretty much that question about what's our purpose? You know, what what are we here for? And then also that self-awareness piece about what's our role in creating this change. Like I said before, like, you know, charities would l- like to promote this idea that they can do everything we will solve world hunger. Mm-hmm. And that sells, it, it attracts donations. But then you have to ask yourself, are you really going to solve world hunger in $100 million? Like, I don't think that statistically that's enough money. So then the question is, okay, what's your role in moving towards this world that doesn't have hunger? You know, and, and let's talk about that. And that's where this idea of redundancy comes up because the role that we play is significant, but it might be specific and it might be time-bound. And it doesn't mean that we have to carry it from zero to finish. Mm. I agree. And it makes sense. The, 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 if I go back to the board, though, and they're sitting there going, well, we need access to capital, though, way. 
Like we can't do this. Like you just said, a hundred thousand is not enough. Maybe if we just make it a billion, yeah. yeah, maybe we can do it. Yeah, and then the parameters of the problem start to change. That's right? right. So are you saying that it's really about defining and putting these constraints down early around what is achievable? What do we think is executable? How are we going to bring it to life? And just be crit- more critical around our access to Maybe resources. realistic as Real, well. Realistic, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that example you gave of like, okay, so 100 million is not enough, let's do 5 billion. That sort of reminds me of those action movies where a guy brings a pistol, the next guy brings a machine gun, the next guy brings a bazooka, and it just ups and ups and ups and ups. Yes. Because it's obviously, you know, it's not sustainable to keep on doing that. And I think what's maybe better is thinking about, okay, again, what is achievable within our scope? Because when I talk about being realistic, the other thing is charities have to shut down. Charities do have to exit countries. So this stuff happens anyway, right? So if it's going to happen, why don't we do it on our watch? Why don't we do it intentionally? Mm-hmm. The bit of research that I, I think is really interesting is that they talk about why do charities leave uh, other countries? And they gave two examples. The first is a charity, uh, the donor government doesn't like the host government. So the money might come from the US government and you're spending it in the Honduras or whatever. And then the US government's like, oh, we don't like that government anymore for political reasons, pull the money. The second reason is the actual money for the program runs out. Now, both of these reasons, which are the most common reasons charities end, is are, are, sorry, are not internal reasons. They're all external things that just happen to us. So my point is that if we're going to have to end, we might as well do it on our own terms and also leave the communities that we are working with in a better position than pulling out unexpectedly. Mm. So it's fundamentally starting with an exit strategy and uh, being deliberate about how you get there. What role do you think government needs to play around supporting this? You talked a little bit there about mm. um, maybe the lack of narrative, the lack of uh, discussion. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of our listeners would, um, who are perhaps not in the space, but would notice is that the government government mindset, particularly in Australia, appears and presents as throw money at the problem. You know, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. I mean, government's obviously got the most resources, so they then potentially have the most impact. And I think the statistic is that um, uh, well, half the charities in Australia, sorry, half of the money in Australia goes to, oh, I'm going to fluff this one now. I think it's about 1% of charities, maybe 2%. It's a very, very... Um, skewed figure that shows that the big charities who mostly get government grants overwhelmingly get the more than line share of resources. So um, I think government's got a role to play, but I'm not particularly hopeful <laughs> that they're going to embrace these kinds of ideas quickly because what will happen and what is happening is it's more in the smaller family foundations that these foundations who have been around for a bit of time and you know maybe generationally um, some of the younger kids come in and they're thinking about new ideas like this and questioning some of the old ways of doing things and they want to test out new ideas. They're probably more, um, have higher risk appetites as well. They're more likely to test it out. And then eventually some of those concepts might filter towards government, but it probably will take a long time. Yeah. Well, it's you being realistic about the problem, right? <laughs> well, yeah, you know, as I listen to what you were just sharing, you know, the mm. first thing that comes to mind is the, what are they incentivized by? you know, the, the outcome or the, the idea of getting elected. Maybe I'm being a little Unfortun- bit. Well, no, unfortunately, that's it's a good point. So a couple of years ago, they um, basically we used to have this government department called AusAid, Australian Aid, and then it got folded into DFAT, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, which says something already, the fact that it got folded into this Foreign Affairs and Trade Department. And then the guiding documents around how we provide aid to poor countries was must be aligned with Australia's foreign interests. And then there's research that shows for every dollar of aid, you get $8 a trade, I think it is, within a certain time frame. So aid, unfortunately, but also, you know, logically, has become about progressing national interests rather than actually helping people at its core. I'm not saying people aren't helped, by the way, but I'm saying the core intention, I don't believe, is actually helping people anymore. Now, again, I'm being realistic. That was bound to happen at some point. Um, but I think it would be nice as a society if we could take our own interests out of it just for a second and be 
purely you know altruistic about the way we help people mm. and what we're actually trying to achieve, well what the, the the purpose of that event is which mm. is where we sort of keep cycling um it's uh when you shared that it brought me to the relationship with big corporates mm. and or bigger businesses and you you look at the intent to to bring a charity alignment through and you ask the question you know, i asked the question when you sort of we're talking through that. Well, are we doing this because it's actually for the greater good of that charity, or are we doing this because it makes us a much more attractive place to work mm. because we're sending a message? Now, I think both can be be true. Yep. We're both both are probably true. But I'd love to, you know, you're you're the expert in this space. What are you noticing? Not sure, that expert. I think with a bigger, I think with a bigger corporate, it's often a bit of a branding exercise, you know. So that's why a and I think this is example an EY would rather partner with a World Vision and Oxfam than they would with some unknown charity. You know, it's typically big prefers big. Um, and yeah, unfortunately that, or regardless of whether that's a good or bad thing, that is just the way things are. Mm. But I, you know, maybe I'm being idealistic in this sense and not realistic, but I, I would like some part of our lives to not be governed by self-interest at some point. You know, <laughs> I don't know if that's too much to ask. Um, and that's where I think, I talk about incentives, it comes back to that, is that yes, that we are incentivized to do things to further the interests of the corporation or of ourselves, but it would be lovely if at times we just broke free of that and did something because we knew it was the right thing to do. Like I, I, I sense that we, we've been talking lots of facts, we've been talking lots of opinions, but you've definitely got a big motivation here around, I mean, you wouldn't sit here, you wouldn't write a book <laughs> about it, right? So there's something more to it than just simply what it is what's what's your emotion motive relationship with this whole situation i mean I, I feel a lot of emotions that are understandable like anger and frustration of course and this desire to to change the way that things are but also i do feel hope as well and the book really is about providing options and showing that there are charities there that are breaking the system and and doing things in a way that i think are hopeful too and I think it is really important that we do have some kind of hope because if you talk to the average person, at least in my circles about charities who don't work in the sector, they're just frustrated and, and kind of done with it. You know, you look at charity donations, they're very low at the moment as a percentage of income, like I think historically at its lowest. So I think people generally are kind of just all charities are bad as a general mindset, unfortunately. So there's no point just continually hammering charities. I think we actually have to provide options. And I think we need to move ideas forward as well. So these bigger charities like Oxfam and, and World Vision, they were started around World War II in response to World War II. Now it's 2023. We don't have a situation like that anymore, but the core fundamentals in terms of structure hasn't changed. So that's my key argument here is, you know, we it's time to move on a little bit. Time to move in, yeah. I'd imagine that if you've spoken to quite a few charities and you're playing these circles, that you'd have some critics. And you'd have good bet. <laughs> good bet, right? And I reckon there'd be a few of them that'd be, you know, taking offense to the ideas that some of the ideas in the book and some of the ideas you've got. What what is the typical criticism of of you and this book? The most common, I don't know if this is a criticism, but it's a counter-argument and it's a valid counter-argument, is something along the lines of things are so bad, how can we possibly think about wrapping up? You know, well, we will consider wrapping up when there are less of these bad things happening and then they'll list all these statistics around mortality, child mortality and, you know, other things like that that are horrific and I agree that they're horrific. Um, but I think that kind of thinking is a bit simplistic because I think that's sort of like, going on a trip and not planning and packing for it before you leave it's we're on the journey and we're kind of trying to work out where we're going but if we had sat down at the beginning and spent a bit of time thinking about again what's our exit strategy what's our end point then we would have worked out where we are sorry how we fit in relation to that problem mm. and, and let's face it things are always going to be bad there's always going to be a problem that is seemingly overwhelming um but i think that's where when we fix one problem, we then move on to another problem, you know? So there's no, 
that's the issue with maintaining the status quo and continuing to work on the same mm. issue mm-hmm. is that these other problems never get addressed. Well, in theory, you'd also don't need to stop. Yeah. So in theory, you can have that strategy in place, hit the end, and decide to re- kick it into a new gear. You're not you're still arguing that's a potential option. Yeah, I mean it's 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 hard to give blanket advice for all different you know yeah. situations, but yes. I think the 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 concept of having an endpoint is in and of itself enough. You know, the intention, whether or not you stick to the timeframes, that's kind of irrelevant. It's more yeah. about the intention and what happens after that. Yeah. So you have to live and breathe this too, right? Because mm. this um, this ideology is something you're very passionate about. Yeah. And Umbo, your your um, social enterprise. Mm. Um, is something that's fledgling along. I know it's making a great difference. You look on your website, you can see the impact of it. You, you're quite clear about tracking that. Um, can you, without me giving it all away, perhaps sure. can you paint the picture of its purpose yeah. um, and how it all works? Sure. So as you can probably tell, I'm very interested in the ideas behind how do we make the world better, but also how do we do it effectively? You know, not just coming in with good intentions, but also thinking about how we do it and how we structure it as well. And so once I, I guess, form this idea of charities that are effective being those that shrink, that then has implications for me as a person, of course, because it means that I don't have a job anymore, (laughs) amongst other things. Then I was introduced to this world of social enterprise. So the difference being that it's a for-profit entity, but With Umbo as an example, uh, the issue we're focusing on is the lack of access to allied health services regionally. So people in rural communities, this morning I was talking to someone in Darwin, the wait time to see a speech therapist is 18 months. Now, if this is a child who's three or four, that's way too long because the window for them to actually improve is very small at that age. And so it's kind of urgent they get it in order for it to be effective. Um, The way that we work at Umbo is we work online. So all of our therapists work from home. It's all done over Zoom and therefore it opens up the uh, number of therapists who can be connected to these people who need therapy. And in our day-to-day work, we're a social enterprise in two ways. The first is we track the proportion of our clients who need the service and are vulnerable, i.e. 60% of our clients are regional, 11% Indigenous, those sorts of stats. And then we also put 50% of our profit into a social impact bank account, which we only ever use to give people access to the service for free. So they'll come to us and say, we can't afford to pay for a number of reasons. We will subsidize the cost of their therapy up to 100% using that money just transferred across. So the beauty of this model, as opposed to the charities, I talked, we talked about growth a bit. This model is all about growth because the more that this entity Umbo grows, the more people get access to services then that 50% profit grows as well. And we can actually use that to help more people too. So I think that's the beauty of this model compared to the charity model where everything is aligned to growth and growth only ever results in more impact. And as you mentioned, it is growing. We've got 60 plus people at the moment. So the model is sort of proving to be worth, um, yeah, worth its weight. I love it. I love it. You seem to be, you're a strategic guy, right? You said it before, a big Mm. picture thinker. I'm sure you were whiteboarding this at some point. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I wish I was that smart, to be honest. I think a lot of it just, it's all about, you know, I think about having the original idea and intention and then bringing people to execute. That's really it. Yeah. Yeah. But did you always see it as a social enterprise or did you originally go, well, maybe this should be a charity? Not after this experience. (laughs) No, no. I think I was done with charities after that because I started to realize that for me, personally, there was no way in which I could drive a salary. It would only ever had to be a social enterprise, but I guess we created this model and we tweaked it over the years and then it became, you know, commercially profitable a couple of years ago. And the other beautiful thing about this model is it doesn't take any grant funding. So we just run a very profitable business and then we just make decisions about how to run the business and then all these people get access to services otherwise they wouldn't get. It's amazing. So you can make money and do good things. You can, and the two can be aligned. And and I think that's the beauty is that when people come to work with us, they know that it's intrinsic. It's It doesn't feel cynical, you know, as sometimes corporates in the way that they um, want to do social impact can feel a bit like an add-on, a bit tacked on. Mm. Um, whereas with Umbo, it's 100% aligned. Mm. So what have you learned? I, I'd imagine from talking to you that you talk to other 
uh, social enterprises and leaders. What have you learned about the characteristics of leadership in this space? First of all, it takes a certain type of person. <laughs> I mean, it takes a certain type of person to be a founder anyway, right? And often founders have egos. And going back to the book, that's often one of the problems is that as the ego of the founder is tied to the charity, it therefore makes it very hard to destroy the charity because why would you want to? Um, but I think with social enterprises, which is a sort of yeah a newer form of doing good, these are often more progressive thinkers and they're looking for newer ways of doing it and thinking about how some of the old models like the charity model are perhaps a bit outdated. Mm. So had you had a lot of experience running business, building business before this particular venture? No. And that's a really good point because I didn't have the commercial skills. And for the first few years of doing Umbo, we weren't commercially viable. And then it took bringing in someone who did have those skills to help us achieve the liftoff, which we've since run with. Beautiful. Mm. So you've looked for help or you found, or the help found you? A bit of both. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I looked and the person found me as well. But yeah, it, with um, another key difference between Umbo and the work in Cambodia is with Umbo, I'm a co-founder. So there's three co-founders and we all have very different skill sets and different personalities and we bring different things to the table. But I think over time, as I've become aware of my own ego, I've also realized how I need to have people around me to account for all these weaknesses that I have, of which there are quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were talking about that before we came in here. I was saying how I don't do a lot with the podcast apart mm. from turning up and uh, doing my best to have a, a, a quality conversation um, because I'm not good at things. Mm. Um, what, what are you good at and what are you not so good at? I think I'm good at the big picture thinking. I think I'm good at supporting other people and keeping in touch with a wide group of people. And I think I'm good at boiling complex ideas down to something that's quite bite-sized and making it simple and digestible without dumbing it down, I think. Um, I'm not good at risk and I'm not good at um, potentially laying out the steps in order that are logical. Um, and one way I think you can tell this sort of person is if you get a new electronic device, do you read the manual or you just pick it up and go for it? Well, or a new piece of software. And I don't think I've read a manual since I was a kid. So I'm a very much like just try it and see what happens, which comes with a lot of downsides. It it does. It does. But we need people like you to take the the risk in mm. uh in in actually making those ideas possible that's true um so it's uh it's interesting it sounds like your co-founders are balancing you out though i think it's really great to have co-founders um so for me the dynamic was often we need to do this and i think what we can do is we can do this and then the co-founder might say okay how are we going to do that and how are we going to get from a to b and then i'd be like hmm, <laughs> time for you good guys question to, <laughs> time for you guys to help me with that bit yeah nice what's um what have you changed your mind on over the years? I ask this to everyone, right? And I don't mean, and I, I, I paint this specifically for anyone who hasn't heard this podcast before. It's not about changing which bus you catch. It's, it's a, something quite principle based or fundamental to the way you live or the way you look at business. Yeah. So the, the biggest, most obvious one that comes to mind is I used to think that it should be hard. So when I was working in Cambodia on this issue, there was, no traction and it was a real struggle to get people to care about this issue and i comforted myself at that time by saying well of course it should be hard because this is an issue that needs addressing and no one's doing it so and also here's the ego talking only i can do it you know i mean this isn't the average person doing it it's me instead as i become older i've started to realize that if things are hard it means either it's not worth doing it's the wrong timing or you're doing it wrong. There are three different possibilities. And so I'm thinking about an event we did, tried to set up recently where we were just struggling with ticket numbers and it was a real push putting a lot of effort in and the numbers weren't really going up. And then we thought about it, we're like, it's just not the right time of year. Let's just postpone it. Whereas I think old way would have been like, no, we must do it at all costs and you know, we must burn ourselves in getting it done. Um, so I guess that's just being a bit more strategic. Yeah, love it. So strategic but you use the word ego and you've used the word ego a few times today yeah 
you know, I, I see ego as an identity. It's, it's about understanding, like, it's okay to have ego because we all do. We all have an identity and we all have a belief of who we are. Mm. What, what, who are you? When, when you look at that and you think about what catches you out or, or where, where you play uh, stronger, what have you learned about yourself in that respect? I mean, I think I am definitely someone who likes to challenge the status quo, if that's not really obvious, <laughs> our conversation. And a lot of that comes from upbringing, um, which in my case is sort of interesting, really, because my parents come from Eastern cultures where you're not really taught to think independently, perhaps. It's more, you know, conformity is encouraged. And yet my parents were really good at making sure that we always ask the question, why? Mm-hmm. You know, why do you think that as opposed to your friends think that? Um, and I think I am someone who's compassionate, particularly towards those that are typically subjugated or in lower positions of power. Um, and yeah, I think that's kind of borne out with the work that I've mostly focused on. Yeah. And your parents, you know, you talked about them from, from Eastern culture, but yet embracing the challenge and the curiosity and the why and passing that on to you. Where do you think that came from with them? It's hard to say. I think my dad was someone who experienced a childhood that he didn't want for himself, his own kids, sorry, I should say. So he was quite fearful of his father. And when he came to Australia in his late 20s, he told me that he was invited to a colleague's house, a white Australian family's house, and he saw the father and the son joking around and ribbing each other and, you know, boxing and fighting and all that kind of stuff. And he thought, I want that relationship with my son. So he changed his approach. So I guess a lot of that change started with him. And it it then, you know, makes sense that I think that he passed on a lot of that independent thinking to us and made us question, you know, why do we want to do it like this? And maybe there's a better way of doing things. Was there a moment in your life where that independent thinking has really paid off for you, where you've gone, that was, that landed, that really was the difference from following the crowd? Yeah, well, I mean, I I was on that path to be um, two moments probably. So one was I studied physio in order to build a huge number of private practices in Sydney and drive a Ferrari. (laughs) That was my (laughs) 20-year-old way of talking. And I'm not disparaging that at all if that's what someone wants to do, but that's definitely not me. And so that's that thing about trying to live someone else's life. And then when I got into working with charities, I thought that I was going to be, you know, glor- glorious UN worker who gets paid to fly to, fly to Brussels and, you know, talk it with diplomats and so on. And then I realized that wasn't me either. And there was a moment, I guess, when I was in Cambodia where, funnily enough, my dad came to visit and it was after a few months. And I just started doing some of this work around speech therapy and investigating, doing research. And um, I was living at the time in this attic. I, I can't even really call it a home. It was basically what they'd done was they had a house and then on top of the roof, they just built this corrugated iron structure and put a spiral staircase up there to rent it out. And my dad saw that I was showering with a bucket shower and not a very good place to live. And keep in mind, he'd come from exactly that. And he'd worked really hard to make sure his kids never went through that. And so he had this look on his face that told me essentially, no son of mine is ever going to live in this sort of situation. But while I'm not glorifying that particular moment, I guess that told me that I was ready to step off this pathway that I thought was for me and to do something that was more values aligned. Mm. It's been a beautiful conversation, mate. Um, and I think we're, for anyone listening to you, there's this nice, you know, kind of dichotomy or balance, or you might call it um, as a better word, around this commercial strategic person that wants to drive and add value and solve problems with real compassion and with a heart and mm. with someone that's really curious and 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 I can see the whole time that you've been challenging this it's not about bashing up charities or, or not about saying they're wrong it's been about trying to find a better way from what I gather and that independent thinking is what's driving that it's what you're about mm. um, and I think that's um, really powerful but it also takes bravery um, and it takes someone to, um, you know, who's prepared to put into writing to, 
to stand up against some pretty difficult conversations from time to time. So um, I admire that and I applaud it and I want to say thank you because it's, um, you know, um, what I whatever you do, I know you're going to make a difference. You know, you can see that in you. So um, are there any, you know, you used the word, oh, just to wrap up, you used the word hope before. Mm-hmm. Um, what, are the, what are some of the hopes that you have um, in leaving today's conversation? What are some of the hopes you have for the work you do? Well, I, I hope that we as a society continue to, think i guess about how we can help people better you know i think it's really great that people have the intention to help but um the ways in which we go about doing it are more important than that initial reactive motivation i think so um that's my one hope with the book is that it sparks a conversation and someone passes it on to a friend or passes it on to a board member and says what about this idea and at least stimulates a thought and maybe a discussion and hopefully an action. And I think if we're able to do that, then we'll actually be able to help people better. Because at the end of the day, we don't do these things uh, except to want to have the biggest impact. And I think we can have a bigger impact if we activate this part of our beings and our brains. Well, I uh, applaud you on that, mate, and I, I wish you all the best. And uh, I've really enjoyed today's conversation. So, um, we'll let you run. You probably you have to drop. You have to get on your bike soon, literally. literally. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, thanks, Wade. It's been awesome, mate. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Anytime.